Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Greg Jarrett, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Well, bank stocks are on the move. I'm looking at some of the big money center banks on a year-to-date basis, up anywhere from 15 to 20 to 25%. Uh, good moves for a long-time beleaguered group. Let's see what's moving this group. We talked to Mike Mayo, of course, senior banking analyst at Wells Fargo, joining us on the phone from New York. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. Nice move here for the banks. Love to get your take on the group. Uh, sure, and thanks for having me on. I'd say we have more confidence that banks are on the road again to the pre-pandemic returns valuations they had before the last year, year and a half. And we think banks are on the road to record efficiency. They're demonstrating resiliency through this recession. And they're showing that this is not your parents' banking industry. I mean, it's night and day versus the past recession. If you remember the last recession, the global financial crisis, what a mess for, for banks. I mean, but instead of uh, out-of-control credit costs, now you're seeing banks actually release reserves for problem right. credits. Uh, they, these are still sobering times. Look, you have individuals and companies you know, likely to go bankrupt, having difficult times, but it's just not as bad as expected, and banks have gotten ahead of that. So also, they're not being so, so Mike, they're not being brazen in releasing reserves. You think there genu- genuinely isn't such a huge risk of, you know, cascading bankruptcies that Joe Stiglitz was warning about last year. That's correct. And banks have been pretty conservative. I mean, it was the biggest buildup of reserves for problem loans in the history of banking in the first half of last year. And in the fourth quarter, they released only about, you know, 11 percent of that. So you still have you know, the other 89% of reserves to, to you know, cushion against different losses. And another change versus the last recession, banks issued all kinds of new equity to shore up the balance sheets. And now, like literally as we speak, banks are allowed to buy back their stock after the most stressful Fed stress test in history in December. And then instead of the big charges and mishaps and problems that banks cause, now, this time, banks are more a part of the solution. So it's really, uh, you know, I think reform school worked for banks. You know, thank you, regulators, uh, for, you know, making banks shape up and have more liquidity and capital and resiliency. And, and there's this, it's a very technical phrase called level three assets. These are assets that are hard to, to value and you, you kind of value it on your own. Um, but, you know, these level three assets are down 80% from the last recession. So that's just one area, one example of how banks have really reduced risk and showing much more sustainable results. And I'd say nowhere do you see this more than Bank of America. Remember, Bank of America was the, the poster child for mortgage problems after they bought Countrywide. A very ill-timed deal will go down in history as one of the worst acquisitions you know, ever <laughs> pursued by a, a bank. Um, but you know, our view is that uh, maybe it's because I read the book Sapiens, but 10,000 years ago was the agricultural revolution. Mm. Well, well, Bank of America has had its own personal agricultural revolution. They've gone from hunter-gatherers to farmers. <laughs> In the past, they would kind of hunt for a new mortgage or gather yeah. a trade or seize an acquisition. 
And now they're like farmers. They're cultivating relationships. They're, they're reaping what they sow. And they, and they do this year in and year out, much more disciplined, sustainable uh, growth way, than you've ever but, seen before. By the way, what, so what are the crops that, that matter most in, in that case? I mean, we've seen interest rates go up. That's good for net interest margins, right? We have forecasts for volatility continue in equities and FX, so, uh, and obviously in fixed income. So that's good for, for trading. And um, M&A, everyone I talk to says this is going to be a, a better year for M&A as well. And last year wasn't even that bad considering the pandemic. What's the most important? Well, for, I'm going to give you the general answer and then the specific it's not – you're asking the question wrong. You're asking a question like it was last century. What are the most important crops for, for banks? So at least like at Bank of America and J.P. Morgan and some of the big banks, now the question is what's the most important meal? What's the meal that's going to satisfy the customers more? So it's more of a relationship approach as opposed to a product approach. Now I will answer your question, though. Having said that, there are certain areas that are growing faster than others, and capital markets are stronger for longer – uh, you've heard uh, just this morning, J.P. Morgan's chief financial officer expects meaningfully stronger trading uh, year over year, meaningfully better uh, investment banking year over year. Uh, you've heard other banks um, say that the backlog uh, for mergers is at a record. Goldman Sachs has said that record year to date um, uh, uh, equity underwriting and IPOs. So capital markets are, are here for, for long. Hey, Mike- so that's really do do investors yeah, do, does the market Mike typically pay a similar multiple for capital markets earnings as they do for the bread and butter net interest income earnings? No, and that that's a fair question. Like a lot of times, investors think of it as one time, but these are once again going back to that idea of a, a relationship. And so you might be getting a doing a trade with the customer one time and doing a little more lending with them another time and doing some prime brokerage a third time, but. So that's why the steeper yield curve that helps the net interest right. margins and spread revenues, uh, that's likely to stay around for a lot longer. So the fact that uh, you have uh, the, the highest uh, 10-year Treasury yield in a year, that is significant. Uh, as Bloomberg reported yesterday, banks hit a 14-year high yesterday, and part of that certainly is on the steeper yield curve, higher rates, and that certainly helps the, the bread and butter traditional banking activities that banks have done, you know, for the last couple hundred years. Um, so that you get the spread revenues doing better, at least for a little longer, you get capital markets doing well, but underlying all of this is technology and technology is helping banks to control costs like they've never done before. Going back mm. to bank of America, a uh, bank of America is a digital banking leader. They're one of the best FinTech companies in the world. Um, they have over 4,000 patents. They had a record number of patents uh, last year. Wow. And uh, you know, I, I, I joke, maybe they need to move their headquarters from Charlotte to Silicon <laughs> Valley to get more credit for what they've been doing. Uh, but this is what they've been doing behind the scenes, you know, before the pandemic, during the pandemic. They've actually shined uh, through the pandemic uh, because digital banking usage has really uh, accelerated as a result of a change in customer behavior. So. I don't know if you were going into branches before, but certainly during the pandemic, uh, you, know, you and everybody else, you know, started to use digital banking a lot more. So the laggards have finally uh, jumped on the, the digital banking bandwagon, and that allows uh, the, the large banks to, to close more branches uh, as people use more digital banking. It makes sense. So I guess that's part of the problem. Rest- 
here, Mike, I mean, I'm in Germany, which is, you know, which is initially why I would ask the question about which is more important, because, you know, Christian Saving wanted to go lean on corporate banking and lending and phase out trading as an important source of revenue. Now it's gone the other way. I know you cover U.S. banks and I see that you have overweights on almost all of them or more than half, let's say. Right. But only underweights on a couple. What are the U.S. banks doing right or what is the setup that allows them to be stronger than than Germany's banks or Europe's banks? Is it the technology piece? Is it the fact that they're not as um, that they're not as the U.S. isn't as overbanked? Well, I'll start with the last uh, global financial crisis and the U.S. banking system uh, certainly recapitalized stronger and faster. So if you look at the the level of of capital of the U.S. banks, it's it's stronger. Uh, The second thing would be uh, cost control. Uh, There's a greater uh, flexibility of U.S. banks to go ahead and uh, do what it takes to control costs. And sometimes that does relate uh, to personnel. Um, So the uh, uh, you know, it's painful in the short term, but it can allow for growth longer term. And I'd say the third thing would be capital markets. And the U.S. has a deeper, wider capital market uh, than in Europe. And you've seen the five largest U.S. banks continue to gain share. So that's Citigroup, Bank America, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, continue to gain share against the big European players like UBS, Credit Suisse, HSBC, Barclays, and Deutsche Bank. Um, and so right. that's, that's, that's kind of across the board. So I'd call it the, the difference is the three fees of uh, capital costs and capital markets that are differentiating the U.S. banks versus the European banks. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts here. Good move here for the banks. Great to get your perspective. Mike Mayo, Senior Banking Analyst at Wells Fargo Security. Now, we just heard a couple of stories about the real estate market. It is hotting up as the British say. Um, and let's bring in Bess Freeman to talk about this for a second. She's the CEO of Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. Bess, um, I am shocked that the market is getting so tight. Zillow is actually going to offer people cash on 500,000 homes if they want. Now, this estimate could be a little low, but it still seems like um, that's the sign of a little bit of froth. Yeah, I mean, New York City is definitely is. What was the word you said? Hawking up. I like that. I might have to hotting, hotting. They say instead of heating up, they say hotting up. It's hawking up. Well, it, New York City is definitely doing that. As far as Zillow and Zestimates, you know, in New York City, that would not work, and we don't use that sort of format because you really do need people in the process. Because as you know, New York City, for the most part, the housing stock that you can purchase is comprised of cooperatives, which require a human being to help you walk through the process. So Zestimates might work in more... Or like a team of human beings, right? And some yeah. lawyers. <laughs> exactly. It's, a, it's You know, you have to give a financial portrait of who you are. Um, it's a corporation. So Zestimates work in some places, but New York City would not work. Um, but the market, we're very um, optimistic because we had one of the strongest Januaries in five years uh, for the luxury market for properties over $4 million. And so New York City is starting to reemerge. Um, and so we're feeling pretty good about that. We want Paul, to my, my financial portrait is more like a crayon drawing, which is <laughs> <Exactly>. why <laughs> which is why I need Stick to look <laughs> somewhere else. Bess, talk to us. You know, there is this... It, I'd love to get your thoughts, Bess, on kind of this broader theme of 
okay, maybe it's not the death of New York, but New York is not going to be post-pandemic what it was pre-pandemic in terms of commercial real estate, vibrancy, um, business uh, participation in the city, and that is likely to spill over to the residential market. How do you take that narrative? No, I mean, this is true. I mean, we definitely got hit very hard during the pandemic. We were shut down. You know, urban centers were, but we were kind of the epicenter. So, you know, everything shut down, Broadway, restaurants, and all of that. Um, But, of course, when we come back completely, we will be a different type of New York. But I would argue a better type of New York um, with different ideas and new creative thinking and that sort of thing. But um, it's going to take some time. I think there are a lot of issues that we have to wrestle with. One, besides the vaccine rollout, which is very important, um, crime, we have to, you know, make sure that we are addressing uh, crime and make sure it's a safe city. Uh, And taxes, you know, we do have some political headwinds here in New York City. There's a lot of city council seats that are coming up in June, uh, something like 30 odd seats. You have the controller's race, the mayor's race. And so all of those things are really important for the future of New York City. Uh, I'm not worried about us bouncing back. People want to be here. It's the best city in the world. But I think people need to start to get involved and pay attention to the political landscape. Um, because otherwise, yeah. you know, you're going to have a pied a terre tax, for example, and that would be very um, detrimental to the city. So I uh, grew up in, on 96 in Amsterdam in the 70s. Nice. Um, New York, to me, looks incredibly safe. But I hear more and more talk about crime. Is that really an issue in Manhattan? You know, look, it, it is an issue. It's definitely ticked up. Even the percentages show it. And the subway ridership now, I think, is down 70%. Um, so there is some of that. And you're seeing more homelessness. And that during the pandemic was, you know, all over the place. And that's really important because if we don't have a safe city, we're not going to have 60 million tourists a year. And people will not want to buy here. So Crime is certainly an issue, and it needs to be addressed, and we need to not have uh, slogans like defund the police, because I don't think that helps us. I think we want to, you know, work with the police and, you know, uh, maybe educate the police and help the police. We want to protect our citizens and have a very safe and vibrant city, as we have had in the past. So, Bess, uh, the Bloomberg HQ here in New York is at 58 in Lex, and as we look out our window, we see what I deem these silly towers that reach to the sky. And a lot of that demand was from international buyers, particularly China. Where is the international buyer vis, you know, as it relates to New York City? No, I'm not seeing any of them. Uh, you know, with the travel restrictions and uh, a lot of other challenges politically, we have not seen international buyers at all. In fact, I was at a project yesterday and, you know, they have had no international buyers and they're almost sold out. Um, so okay. it's been mostly domestic. What you're seeing lately, as of late, um, the purchasers here are all just like from West Coast to East Coast or coming from the South. I mean, we're having a mixture. Um, so I think it's going to be a while before we see that reemerge. What about the Burj Al New York, though? I mean, especially <laughs> in the age of social distancing, don't people want to have outdoor space, you know, um, 3000 square feet? I mean, isn't isn't that what they're looking for now? I mean, that's, you know, look, you have to have a lot of uh, money to be able to afford 3,000 square feet. And a lot of, you know, the average New Yorker who's raising a family here, have kids going to school here, they can't afford 3,000 square feet. 
Um, so they are reimagining the space. Maybe they want a little outdoor. Maybe they want a home office. Right. Um, so people have done that and undergone some changes. Um, and Brooklyn is still doing extremely well because yep. there's a lot of townhouse inventory there. So, you know, people have moved around a little bit, but I right. have a lot of friends who've moved and they want to, they're in Palm Beach or yep. uh, Connecticut, and they, they miss the city because it's boring right. in other places. Hey, Bess, thank you so much for joining us once again. We always appreciate it. Bess Friedman, CEO Brown, Howard Stevens. Greg Jarrett, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Well, big, big news coming out of Australia as it relates to the digital news business. Australia just passed a law making Facebook and Google actually pay for the local news that is generated by uh, operators within Australia. The question is, will other countries follow suit? And what does it mean for these big digital media companies? For that answers to that, we go to Jim Anderson. He's the CEO of Social Flow based in New York. Um, in full disclosure, Social Flow is a platform used by Bloomberg for social media purposes. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. So this seems like a big deal because to date, Google, Facebook, other digital players have generally received their news at little to no cost. So what does this mean? Yeah, it is big news. And I think it's a win for both parties. The Australian government has pushed more dollars to publishers and is able to say that they took on big tech and won. And and that's great for them. But Facebook made its point as well. They preserved their right to just ban news content again, as they did very briefly in, in this negotiation, rather than submitting themselves to forced arbitration. And they made it very clear to other countries around the world who are are watching very closely that there's a point past which they're not willing to go. So, you know, there aren't many negotiations where you can you can claim both sides win. But this is one I think they did. So how does this work um, in practice? I mean, if I put a New York Times story on my Facebook page, um, Facebook has to pay The New York Times to show it to my uh, to my friends. Well, actually, so it's in Australia. This is, is fairly interesting. It's specifically Australian media organizations. That's obviously what the Australian government is most interested in. So you're talking about News Corp in Australia and other big media companies. Facebook is effectively paying them a licensing fee. And so what the law says is that they have to reach some kind of licensing agreement working with each other. And if they don't reach a licensing agreement, that's where the requirements of the law kick in. It doesn't affect you as a user. It doesn't affect the New York Times you know, here in the United States. The real question, though, as you said, is what are other governments going to do? And you could see EU and, and Canada, uh, you know, being jurisdictions where they might follow the Australian approach. I'm, I'm not so sure that that approach would fly here in the United States. It's a little bit too much government picking winners and losers. Well, or Jim, does this, does this mean that um, Australians are now going to have a much bigger exposure to foreign media? No, I don't think it does. Interestingly, you know, what Facebook has said all along is, you know, media companies choose to put their content on Facebook, whether it be an Australian media company or foreign media companies. They, of course, have algorithms that can bubble content up or down. And we see that all the time with our media clients. You know, the reach uh, rises and the reach falls. And that's been one of the criticisms as well. Is it's so unpredictable what Facebook does. But there's nothing in this law that requires you know, that reach to be any higher, there are some requirements about disclosure of algorithms, and, and those don't seem to be talked about a lot. I think that's, in practice, going to be a lot harder than what they were hoping for in theory. So, Jim, is this a, a risk to the economics of a Facebook, of a Google? <laughs> you would think it would be if it was uncapped. You know, every company is, is going to be wildly reluctant to take on an uncapped liability, and I think that's what this forced arbitration 
looked a little bit like. But they've gotten a lot of certainty here. They, they have preserved their right to just walk away if the, if the stakes get too high or the costs get too high. But Facebook uh, made some news this morning. I think it was they said they were going to commit more than a billion dollars over three three years. But I mean, Facebook is a $750 billion company. This is very much a cost of doing business. It's it's an acceptable cost for both Facebook and Google. And I think as long as they can keep it in the low billions of dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but to to Facebook and Google, you know, it's really not that much money. Except to your point, Jim, this is only one country and others. I mean, I'm in Berlin and I've had conversations with Matthias Dupfner, who runs Axel Springer. Um, They publish Build uh, newspaper, among many other publications. He has complained about the fact that Facebook and Google use their content without paying them for it. So does does Germany look at this, too? Does does the U.S. look at this? Yeah, well, so definitely Germany and and more broadly, the European Union are going to look at this. I think that's probably the, the jurisdiction that would be most likely to copy the Australian approach and, and perhaps Canada as well. I, I just don't see that working in the U.S., though, more practically. I mean, you've got literally the government taking the role of picking a winner and a loser in a commercial negotiation via forced arbitration, as polarized as our politics are in the U.S., and as, as strong as, as some conservative beliefs are, is that really a role that you want government playing? So I, I don't see that approach uh, applying here, but I very much think that the European Union is watching closely and, and may very well choose to follow Australia's approach. So, Jim, you follow these, you know, the, uh, the social media technology space closely. What do you think the regulatory risk is for a lot of these companies you know we've over the last couple of years we've seen ceos of some of these big tech companies hauled before congress to testify about various parts of their business you know we now have a new administration in the white house um what's the expectation on silicon valley well without a doubt it's got to be antitrust right the, the facebook's and google's and amazon's and apple's of the world are giant companies i mean they are the standard oils of of this this century and, and this decade or the at&t's if you want to go back to that uh, that analogy. So clearly antitrust, not just in the U.S., but also in the EU, for instance, has got to be a giant concern. And that leads to the point this, this Australian, you know, sort of the debate and, and negotiation um, is a commercial negotiation wrapped inside of a public relations battle. I mean, there, there's a, a question about how much money goes to who, and, and that's very important, obviously, to the Australian media. But the larger point to Facebook and Google is that public relations battle because ultimately that's what affects the antitrust action from government. So I wonder if then uh, Facebook or Google could be broken up. When you say antitrust, that's what I think of. Um, Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think it is. And and that's probably the biggest concern. So let's think about this. Uh, Facebook, we'll start with them. They own Instagram. They own WhatsApp. And so it wouldn't be hard to imagine some kind of antitrust requirement that would force them to divest one or both of those. Google notably owns YouTube, uh, just to pick one example. They also own what was formerly called DoubleClick, which powers a lot of the advertising uh, on Google and on YouTube. So there are certainly elements of each company that you could imagine being on the table uh, in an antitrust uh, type conversation. Obviously, neither a company would be in favor of that divestiture. You can expect them to battle considerably. So I, I don't think that will unfold quickly. But over the next, you know, one, two, three years, uh, might we see those kinds of discussions? I think that's entirely possible. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow, giving us his thoughts on what we're seeing coming out of Australia, some, some little bit of a 
increased regulation there as it relates to some of that local news. And, uh, you know, Matt, I could see the European Union probably thinking about this might be an opportunity for us to maybe assert a little bit of a uh, control over our content that's coming out of Germany. You know, for, for the last 10 years, I have to say, Paul, you've been the person I go to when I'm when I'm wondering about media properties. So what's your take on Facebook and the possibility of a breakup? Uh, I don't think that a breakup is likely, uh, but I think it, uh, in terms of any new deals, uh, any anti-competitive behavior is going to be looked at very closely. So I think the overall light touch that the U.S. tech industry has enjoyed over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, that I think on the margin uh, is changing and they need to be positioned for that. Oh, man, we're going to get canceled if you call us that. That's not you got to. That's dangerous. Um, but I want to bring in another boy right now. Barry Ritholtz joins us um, from Ritholtz, Ritholtz Wealth Management, also the host, of course, of Masters in Business, the podcast that's uh, grown so popular. And Barry, I got to start with one, what I think is one of the most interesting stories um, today. Deutsche Bank did a survey of you know, potential recipients of the $465 billion in direct stimulus that's expected to come soon. 37% said they want to put it directly into stocks. And as I watch Game Stonk um, rise again today, <laughs> I wonder, is this, uh, you know, Charlie Munger has said this is a dirty business, a dirty way to make money. It's gambling. Is this a problem? Um. Uh, well, there's two questions in there. One about the stimulus, the second about um, the gamification uh, of, of trading apps. And so from the stimulus perspective, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We know that there's 10 million people unemployed. There are lots and lots of people underemployed. It's still uh, going to be a, a, a quarter or two before we can even hope to be getting back to normal and lots and lots of people are, are finding themselves both food and healthcare insecure and, and this is to resolve some of that uh, which all results from the pandemic so uh, is it going to be perfect no but that's the nature of federal government rescue plans is there are always going to be people who don't deserve uh, what they get I, I you know those surveys are always terrible uh, in in my firm, we put people through a um, a, a form of a risk tolerance survey. It, it's almost pro forma at advisory firms, but all it ends up telling us is what the market's done over the past couple of months. It doesn't really give you insight. And so, if thirty seven percent of people say they want to put some money into stocks, what that tells us is not what their real intentions are. But the FOMO surrounding recently rising markets and let the market take a 15 or 20 percent dip and that number will drop to far, far below 37 percent. Hey, Barry, we just had uh, Mike Mayo on Bank Analyst at Wells Fargo Securities, uh, you know, really constructive on the, the banking sector, you know, net interest margin uh, improvement with the, the steepening of the yield curve and really strong capital markets uh, activity. What's your take on the, on the bank stocks? So, so you said the magic words, steepening of the yield curve. You know, when you're a bank, you could borrow from the Fed at Fed funds rate and then lend it out at prevailing rates. And, and people don't realize when all rates are close to zero, there's not a whole lot of fat there for banks to make a lot of money. 
when you look out on the other side of the valley of the pandemic, once we're all done sheltering in place and working from home, hmm. which surely is, is sooner rather than later, but even if some of the more conservative estimates put us in September, October, well, that's a couple of quarters from now. Uh, I'm not in the inflation camp. Um, we certainly should see inflation. Really? Nor- yeah, we should see inflation normalize, and there'll be some transitory increases in prices. There's a lot of spot shortages uh-huh. of goods as as manufacturers start to ramp back up again. But, uh, you know, all these factors are suggesting that there's a big, fat change coming that's going to very much accrue to the benefit of banks from, from the yield curve and in improving economics and just seeing that 10 million unemployed yeah. start to head back towards, you know, a more normalized rate as, as this externality passes. Ba- banks, I can I can buy banks doing well because everything is going to go in their favor. The yield curve, um, yep. volatility is expected to, to remain or even increase in risk assets so they can trade a whole bunch of stuff around and make money off of that too. M&A is supposed to be strong again this year. Um, I got to take issue with the inflation call. Uh, transitory, I mean, all the prices that I see going up on um, commodities, for example, copper and lumber and oil, I can't imagine- How about gold? I don't see it going up in gold, inflation? but you don't you don't need gold to rebuild Texas, right? You don't need gold to um to to triple or quadruple the EV fleet. Gold isn't necessary to put in chargers. I mean, infrastructure spending isn't going to be buying gold. I'm I might myself, but <laughs> all of this stuff, Barry, it seems like we're going to need more of it. I mean, as government yeah, spend sure. trillions and trillions of dollars, they're going to be buying Absolutely. copper with it. Absolutely. So, so you're coming out of a year plus of a forced lockdown in all sorts of things that have normally taken place. You, you, and, and you're starting. We, we see spot lumber shortages, and I, I'm in the middle of a kitchen renovation that was supposed to start March 2020. I'm still waiting for my refrigerator doors to show up eight months later. Like all these things are taking much longer because. It's hard to restart an economy after you lock it down for a, a couple of months. That said, um, when, when you see all the different things that we're going to be spending money on, that, that's why I say, say this is transitory. Overall, for the past three decades, the dominant economic inflation has been deflation. You, you have between technology making the cost of digital goods cheaper, uh, automation and and logistics making the cost of of physical goods cheaper, and then global labor arbitrage making everything cheaper. Deflation is your background um, driver with these periodic spasms of inflation. I wouldn't be surprised to see a a, a pop in inflation higher from where we are. But it looks like it's going to be transitory. It's not going to take 20 years to rebuild Texas. It'll take a couple of years. Yes, there are massive infrastructure needs in the United States, but those aren't get it done by Tuesday. And here. And here. And by the way, the Germans do spend decades rebuilding stuff. I mean, it took us two decades to build the Berlin airport. (laughs) So, So generally speaking, the U.S. has moved from a infrastructure leader to a giant laggard, we, we once were the, look at the interstate highway system built under Eisenhower, 
and how it's been starved of, of maintenance funds. And it's bridges and tunnels and rails and airports and go down the list. There is nothing preventing the Biden administration from saying, we want to do a 10-year, $5 trillion infrastructure build funded, if they're smart, with 50 or 100-year bonds while things are as cheap as they are now. And that is not necessarily inflationary because yep. it's, it's going to be over a decade. And it's what we should have been doing over the past 30 years. Maybe part of the deflation we've been experiencing is our failure to do what most country, countries do, which is take care of their infrastructure. We're so, way, way behind. And so, Barry, hopefully there's some bipartisan support for that. But as we think about inflation, you're really not going to have meaningful inflation in, in, in this economy unless you get wages moving higher. And they were starting to do like that. Like starting at $15 an hour? Yeah, exactly. They were starting to do that prior to the pandemic. What's your view on kind of, kind of the labor market and wage growth? So, so, you know, we've seen a really interesting experiment take place, um, both on the minimum wage side, but across the board. And I know it's 2021, but when you trace the history of what's taken place with median wages in the U.S., we are still shockingly feeling some of the effects of the great financial crisis of 0809. We saw a number of people lose their jobs and, and subsequently get different jobs that paid substantially right. less. There is a massive underemployment issue in the United States that we don't really talk about, and you're not going to get the sort of wage push inflation that was yep. an epidemic in the 70s and, and what people traditionally think of as one of the key drivers of inflation as long as 20 yep. or 30 or maybe it's even 40% of the country is underemployed. You know, hey, Barry, we Barry nation, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because of time. We'll, we'll get you back certainly uh, very quickly. Barry Ritholtz, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and founder and chairman, chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.